So that's our first of two speakers. The second one is the guy who's speaking tonight in our evening service. He's going to be taking the lion's share of the evening service. I asked him to give kind of a, uh, a preview. And uh, he's, he's come to be a very dear friend to me. I absolutely adore this man. Uh, his testimony is phenomenal. And uh, he's being used mightily of the Lord. And when you hear some of the stories, you'll be absolutely blown away. I had the privilege of meeting him in the American Renewal Project. Um, his name is David Brody. He's a correspondent for Christian Broadcasting Network. You've seen his pieces on the 700 Club. He actually did a piece on me, which he did a really good job of, and I was grateful for. Thanks, man. And so I said, would you come and share at our two early services? And he said he would. And, um, and then he's sharing tonight. I want you to come out tonight. Uh, this is the cultural mountain of influence, the media. And you want to talk about, you know, the media bias and the like. When you see what God's doing in and through David Brody, uh, you'll realize that we are making an impact. And as Christians, you need to learn how to do that. And David's going to teach it tonight. And uh, this man is gifted. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, David Brody. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. I'll send the check to you a little later on. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's my Jewish roots. I grew up Jewish. I think money. It's just kind of, it's just it's right here. It's near and dear. Uh, so thank you. Uh, I kind of feel a little overdressed. I'm overdressed, aren't I? I'm overdressed. I, I know. I, I'm from Washington in a suit. Run for the exits. A guy in a suit from D.C. Run. Uh, so I'm just here to simply say God is a God of miracles. And I've got proof. Uh, first of all, I, I'm, a, I'm a walking miracle because, like, I was just a Jewish kid from New York. Uh, and here I am in California at this wonderful church. So we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, all here, God has got a miracles because, well, Donald Trump is president. So, <laughs> hello. Oiga <laughs> Volt. Uh, I mean, in a good way, Oiga Volt, I guess. Uh, anyhow, so, you know, look, uh, it's interesting how God works because God is using Donald Trump as an instrument for change in Washington. And a lot of folks are saying, yeah, I mean, yay. Uh, I'm sure he'll call me later, say, thanks for saying that. Thank you. Thank you. That was very nice. Um, but you know, beyond that, you know, but he's changing the media landscape in DC for sure. I mean, I, I mean, CNN, right? Fake news, the whole thing. Yeah, and uh, Jesus, Jesus, by the way, real news, Jesus, real news. Um, but he's changing the landscape. And what do I mean by that? Well, folks like us, CBN now has a front row seat right there uh, at, at the White House. And to see how all of this transpires, I mean, basically, Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, and Donald Trump and all these folks, they, they're saying, CBN, come on in, Christian Broadcasting Network, we want you uh, to be a part of this conversation. And uh, it's about time. Hello. It's about time. I mean, we have like the fifth largest cable television audience in the country. Hello. I'm sorry, I'm talking Jew. Hello. Yeah, I, I, do a, I do a little thing. So anyhow, um, so how is he changing the media landscape? Well, we got the CBN got the third interview with Donald Trump since he was president. It was uh, ABC's David Muir. Good for him. Uh, Sean Hannity with Fox News. And then yours truly. I mean, I got the interview with Donald or God gave me the interview uh, with Donald Trump five days into the presidency. So that was pretty cool. And so we've got that going on. And beyond that, it's just amazing to see what he's doing. Um, first of all, I want to say on that interview that uh, I was able to get, that happened all within 48 hours. 
So it happened on a Friday, and on Wednesday, I sent an email to someone at the White House, long story short, and within 48 hours, we were sitting down with the president. That's God. That's totally God. Uh, he works quickly. Um, and so there was, there's that. And then, uh, believe it or not, there, is, there was a media luncheon. Okay, so here's the way this works. So in the White House, on the day of the State of the Union, which uh, it wasn't really the State of the Union, but remember in February when he spoke to Congress, he brought all of the media bigwigs, you know, from the, net, the network anchors like uh, Lester Holt and David Muir and John Dickerson and Chris Wallace from Fox News. So usually it was about 15 or 20 people in the room. Well, this year, CBN, hello, we were in the room as well. So there I was with Jennifer Wishon, our White House correspondent. We were right there in the state dining room at the White House. It was very cool. Uh, and Donald Trump was sitting here, and Steve Scully from C-SPAN was here. And then, then there, there I was, two, two seats down from Donald Trump, and CNN was like at the end of the table, which was great. <laughs> with moldy all d'oeuvres. So no, no, Jake Tapper was like, you know, I'm down here. And he was like, great. So anyhow, so that was really cool. And the other part of this is, which really neat, New Day in D.C., there's now a, a Bible study going on, a weekly Bible study that Mike Pence and the cabinet members are holding every week in Washington, D.C. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. I mean, so it's Mike Pence and it's Ben Carson and Betsy DeVos and Tom Price, the HHS secretary. So this is happening. And they tell Donald Trump that he's invited anytime he'd like to stop by. So hopefully he will. Uh, so there's that. And then CBN has actually started a I, we actually started a media Bible study at CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network every other Wednesday where we invite other folks from the media. And I don't know if you've heard of Major Garrett. He works at CBS. Uh, he called up the other day and says he wants to come. So that's cool. John Dickerson from Face the Nation wants to come. So that's really cool. And then, so one day we were just literally, it was a bunch of us CBN folks praying uh, at this Bible study and the front doorbell rings and who's there? Well, uh, a person from the Washington Post showed up. Wow. And, and one from ABC News as well. We're like, come on in. Jesus loves you. So anyhow, that was really cool. So these are the little ways that are, things are changing. Oh, and Benjamin Netanyahu, do you remember that press conference with Donald Trump? Benjamin, I, so I got called on as the first reporter to ask a question at that press conference, which was really cool. And then the, we had to provide smelling salts for the media because they were passed out. They didn't, they were like, what? The Christian guy? So anyhow, so it's really cool. So like, so God is a God of miracles with Donald Trump. And I'm definitely a miracle. I'm a Jewish kid from New York. I grew up, I got, you know, please. Oh, the scripture. I was going to go, oh, yeah, I'll tell you about the scriptures. Uh, so there was a time, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a long story, about a year and a half ago, I've known Donald Trump for about seven or eight years. We kind of bonded because, you know, he's from New York. I'm from New York. We talk like this, you know, whatever. Um, and... So it's a long story, but we're at a function, and he looks at me, and he says, David, can you send me some Bible verses? <laughs> Talk about smelling salts. So I said, sure, I'll send you some Bible verses. So I did. I emailed them to him. He doesn't have an email, but his secretary has an email, and then they print them out for him. He's like 1973. He prints them out. Anyhow, so he goes ahead, and, and uh, I, I send him the Bible verses, and I send him devotionals and everything. I mean, I send him the NIV link, you know, the whole thing. Uh, and so about a week and a half later, he calls me on, on my cell phone. Well, he, I mean, it's his secretary calling, you know, Mr. Trump is on the line and you just wait until, yeah. And then I get on the line and he says, David, just so you know, I, I have the Bible verses. They're printed out on my desk and I read them every day. I'm like, wow. He does read them every day. 
So that was kind of cool. Uh, so, so these are the ways that, uh, you know, there is a new day in DC and God is a God of miracles. I'm definitely a walking miracle. I Jewish kid, like I was saying from New York, a bar mitzvah, the whole nine yards, eight gefilte fish. I did the whole thing. Don't eat gefilte fish. This just in real news. Oh, uh, anyhow. So, so I did the whole thing and I went to high school. I actually went to high school. Thank you. Um, I went to high school, and I met my future wife there, um, and we dated, for, well, we went to school together, and then we dated when we were 21, both, so seven years, we were really good friends, and she gave her life to Christ when she was 18 at Ithaca College in upstate New York, uh, and then I went to the same college, by coincidence, not really, hello, God, uh, hello, sorry, I get a little sarcastic. It's right here. And so anyhow, uh, 21, seven years we're dating, and she, we decided to go out. And she goes, so look, here's how it's going to go down, is what she says. <laughs> and she's from New York, so, you know, she's like, you know, doing the whole snap fingers. Uh, she's like, Jesus is number one. You understand this, right? And I'm like, wait, what? No, 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 I'm Jewish. You know, well, hang on. So we broke up. We broke up for six months because I just, you know, I, I'm Jewish. I'm the oldest Jewish, uh, you know, son. I have to be number one, right? So anyhow, um, so we broke up for six months. Eventually, long story, I started to pray and at meals, and uh, I started to get curious about the Lord a little bit. So we decided to go out. Two years of going out, and I was going to church. I was in Times Square Church in New York. And yeah, David Wilkerson, right? Yeah, I'm charismatic tambourines. Oh, <laughs> Volt. I was like, you got to be kidding me, tambourines. So, I mean, they don't have tambourines at Temple, you know what I'm saying? So, anyhow, so I'm going to uh, Times Square Church, but I'm really listening, and I'm, and I'm saying, you know, I'm curious. I'm intellectually curious, and I'm like, what is this Jesus character all about? Anyhow, so I'm getting really close. So we get married, and I wasn't a believer at that point. And I know everybody was like telling my wife, hey, not cool, not kosher, <laughs> uh, not kosher. <laughs> How to do it? How to do it? It's a cheap, it's a Catskill thing. So, um, so not kosher. And she says, but I've been praying, and he's close. Yeah, okay. So anyhow, we got married, the whole nine yards, and, and uh, it was a, like a Jewish and a Christian style. There was a rabbi and like a, a priest that looked, I kid you not, looked like Obi-Wan Kenobi with the whole. Anyhow, so we had a great time. Uh, I had a great time at my wedding. Uh, and then a month later at a prayer meeting in Colorado Springs, because we moved to Colorado Springs, a guy by the name of Lorenzo, I don't think he has a last name, it's just Lorenzo, like Oprah. And so he... He's literally, he comes up to me. I'd never met this guy before. And he starts to recite my life to me. And he starts talking about how you grew up Jewish from New York. I'm like, how do you know this? It's it's amazing. Uh, We didn't come with anybody. I mean, it wasn't planted a story. It was totally prophetic. And he says, you've been wrestling with this. It's time to make a decision either way. But God is speaking to you. And right there at that prayer meeting, I gave my life to Jesus Christ in 1988 in Colorado Springs. So I was close. I, I, I did it. I didn't do it. God did it. God did it. I just I said, okay. So then I had to tell my mom. <laughs> I had to tell my Jewish mom. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't like Fiddler on the Roof or anything where she packed my bags, hey, pack your bags and go. Uh, but it's been up and down with my mom. I figure God has a sense of humor because my liberal Jewish mother watches the 700 Club in New York. So that's, 
So I told my mom one time, I said, Mom, you realize uh, Jesus is Jewish. You, you, you realize Jesus is Jewish, right? And she goes, I thought he was Protestant. <laughs> That's the Oigavolt level, by the way. Uh, anyhow, so I, I'm, a, I'm a miracle thanks to Jesus. Donald Trump is president. Thanks to Jesus, for sure. Uh, and now the biggest miracle of all, which is religious liberty, this culture, we, have got, we need a spiritual revival in this country. Uh, and you guys are living it out here in California because, you know, God, God bless your heart, as they say in the South. I mean, it is, it is tough. And I go around interviewing a lot of folks around the country, um, and many of them have these amazing religious liberty stories to tell. I don't know if you've heard of Baronel Stutzman. She's that florist from Washington State. And she basically, she, it was a, uh, a uh, private business that she, it was a family business. And in essence, this gay couple comes in and she's known them for 20 years and they want to buy flowers. She, they want her to provide flowers for uh, their wedding. And she's a born again evangelical. She says, I can't do that. Well, they sued her and they sued her for everything she has and she's lost. It's gone through the court system, and now pretty much, it, whether if the Supreme Court takes it up, possibly, but probably not. At this point, it's gone as far as it can go except the Supreme Court. And they've literally taken away everything, not just from a business standpoint, but they went into her personal bank account, and they want everything. Anyhow, so she's pretty much financially ruined. I spoke to her. This was over a year or two ago, but it still plays out today because it's bad. And uh, have a look. I just want to show you a little clip of her. And so that, there she is, Baronelle. And, and so I want to point out another uh, woman, Kim Davis, uh, who you may know from Kentucky. You've heard about her standing for marriage down there, the law clerk in Kentucky who said, I'm not going to issue the marriage license and all that. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, by the way, she was a Democrat for like her whole life, and she was married, I think, three or four times, and God chooses her to stand for traditional marriage. Isn't that pretty cool of God? Uh, the way he takes us imperfect vessels and uses him for his glory. Here's my interview with Kim Davis about that. Have a look. That's pretty awesome. I mean, yeah. So, you know, and, and there are Kim Davises I know in this room today and Baronelle Stutzman's, and what I mean by that is that it's coming to a a area, a school, a district near you. It's co coming into your neighborhoods. You probably know this already, obviously. And I know Pastor uh, McCoy has always talked about, you know, take care of your own bean patch. Well, it's coming to your bean patch. Uh, and so these folks are, are taking care of their own bean patches and, and, and much more so even. Uh, and then one last one, and then we'll go. I know I got to keep time is money. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> see, it's right here. Um, so then there is Coach Joe Kennedy from Washington State. He's the guy that wanted to pray on the 50-yard line uh, with his uh, players after the game. And the school district said, sorry, you can't. You're fired. And he said, oh, really? Well, then I'm going to sue you. And he did. He, sued, he said, my First Amendment rights are being violated. And he's a Marine, so don't mess with Marines. Uh, and here's my interview with Joe. Pretty cool. So anyhow, a lot more tonight, uh, tonight, seven o'clock, um, I'll be sharing more videos and we're all a work in progress. This as a spiritual revival. We need it. These folks are, 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 are doing their best, but we are all a work in progress for sure. Donald Trump is a work in progress, uh, spiritually. And I will share a story about having dinner with Donald Trump. Wait till you, why am I talking like this? <laughs> Wait till you hear this story. Uh, it was my wife and I, Melania and Donald Trump. Oi, Gavolt. It, it's a story, but I'll share it. I'll share it tonight. So thanks. Excellent teaser.
Thanks, David. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, before we get into the study of the Word, uh, I want to tell you, I went to the Dodger game last night, and I was a guest, and uh, we, we stayed to the game. It was 5-2. to two. The Phillies were winning. Uh, bottom of the eighth, Dodgers three out, three up, three out, and uh, we said, let's go. So we left. And uh, in, the, in the car, back to back to back home runs. Uh, scores tied, you know, and then the guy, the, the, the bobblehead night guy, uh, he ends up hitting the base hit that scores a run, <laughs> missed that. And the illustration is don't leave early. <laughs> Stay to the end. Amen. Uh, let's pass out the word. We're going to be in Matthew 11. If you need a Bible, these folks will hand you one. Just raise your hand. They'll get it to you. Matthew chapter 11. Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, um, I wanted to kind of set the stage a little bit. In this passage we're going to read today is one of the most precious uh, verses, and I'll get to that in a moment. But as I was thinking about David Brody and this idea of, of having an effect in our culture, and the power of prayer, as you guys fill out those prayer requests, and we're praying fervently and praying there hasn't been a move of God without orchestrated corporate prayer. And it's not an exercise in futility to continue week in and week out to invite you to the five o'clock prayer service. It really does make a difference. Um, and I can tell you that miracle. I mean, my sister, 35 years, uh, to give her heart to the Lord, a continual prayer, watching right there, uh, uh, fifth row, she raised her hand. I, I, was, I was stunned. I, I, I go through stories, but I don't have time. And... We're making a difference in the sense that we're being faithful. And um, when David was, I, I was in Washington when I was with Sean Spicer and went out to the West Lawn to do a, an interview. And so they're hooking up the earpiece and, and, and Sean is there and, and the producer's there, his name's Ben. And he, Ben says, uh, okay, the studio's live. David can hear you and you'll be live in two minutes. And uh, I go, Ben, are you with CBN? He goes, yeah. And I go, hey, Sean, tell David Brody that I'm looking forward to seeing him at church in the coming weeks. Sean looks at me. He's like, yeah, I'm with Rob McCoy, Pastor Rob McCoy. Oh, no, 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 no. He's like, Sean looks at me like, who don't you know? <laughs> and uh, it's such an honor to have David with us. Um, you, you think about this. I I'd sent Sean that devotional as, as David had sent President Trump the devotional. And these are flawed men. And, uh, I mean, think about Donald Trump. This is, this is a man that if you look at Samson in the Old Testament, there's nothing moral about his life. And, you know, Donald Trump is many times married and divorced and by his own admission has slept with every woman in New York. And he's an odd duck. And that he would be president of the United States and that CBN would be being considered and all these things happening. You look at it and you say, how did God use Samson? How does he use uh, an immoral man? It's this idea of confronting culture. And when you get guys like David Brody, they're confronting culture, making a difference. And when you confront culture, you're going to face opposition, and it's going to be difficult. And there's, there's opposing ideologies and worldviews, and everybody's fighting for it. We're going to see this in the text today. But um, with Sean, much like the president, Sean Spicer, I had sent him a devotional. And uh, Sean went through that horrible thing where uh, he had said that Hitler didn't use gas on... 
Yeah, and you think about Zyklon and all the six point six and a half million Jews that were, were gassed to death. And it was just, it was an absolute failure on Sean's part. And he imploded, and, and, then, and within four hours, he had made the circuit in the media to apologize, fall on his sword, and acknowledge his wrong, and owned it. And it, and it saved his job and saved, saved him. And he sent me a text, and I was really blessed by it. He said, Rob, you have to see the reading today and the devotional you sent me. So I opened it up and I read it, and it was verbatim everything he had done and how God's word ordered his steps, and he aligned himself and walked through this fire and came out unscathed, basically. Guys like David, and in a very, very, very small part on my end, we get this opportunity, brings us into the court of kings, and you just share the word and, and hope that it takes root, and you watch it. And that's what all of us are doing, but more importantly in our community, to make those inroads. And I'll tell you what, God is a God of miracles. Um, my sister is just, I'm blown away by that. I would have never fathomed. I, I, there are days where you're praying, you're just saying, God, is this an exercise in futility? But it is, it is a powerful move of the Lord. And a conversion of a human heart, nothing more than just simply the preaching of the Word of God. So today as we take a look at this passage, you're going to hear words. And in hearing these words, you're going to come alive. You're going to come alive because this Word is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. It'll divide the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And as you allow this word to touch you, you'll be changed. And I, I pray that God uses us today to minister to you. And I pray that it ministers deeply. And so please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. In Matthew 11, we're going to pick up in verse 16, where we left off. We studied John the Baptist last week and Jesus concludes. Uh, and he, he, he then turns to the crowd that's remaining as John's two disciples walk away And he says to the crowd in verse 16, but what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we mourned to you and you did not lament. And and these children are saying, hey, we want to play this game. And they they say, we don't want to play that game. Well, we played the flute. You're supposed to dance. Well, let's play the funeral game. And well, we did the mourn and you didn't do it. And, and it's like people are saying to God, we want you to dance to our tune. We want you to play according to our rules. And God says, no. And Jesus is laying this out. He says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he adds this line, which is profound. He says, but wisdom is proven by her children. Meaning that if you follow an ideology to its end, you're going to see the wisdom in it based on uh, the, 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 the children. What is, the, what is the product of, of your ideology? And then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. And there's a group of three cities, and we're going to see this in November, where Jesus did the lion's share of his teaching uh, in the shores of Galilee. And there's three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and uh, Capernaum. And Jesus speaks to these three cities, and he says, he began to rebuke these cities, verse 20, in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, you will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades or hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And then he says this in verse 25, 
At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he says these three words, and this is the precious passage that I love so much, come to me, come to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The only autobiographical statement Jesus ever made in the scriptures, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's ask the Lord for wisdom. Lord, as we prepare to study your living word, we ask, Holy Spirit, you cause us to come alive to it. We thank you for the tenderness of your words. Come unto me. I pray today, Lord, that those words would echo in every heart present. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in our lives, and we ask that you'd bless us, that we would honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. Relax, but don't fall asleep. As I said before in this passage of Scripture, John the Baptist is in prison. His two disciples went back to respond to John what what the question they had inquired of Jesus in regards to. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and he speaks of John. And then he goes into this statement. And he says, what shall I liken this generation? And he's speaking to those who are present. He says, what shall I liken this generation to? It is like children in the marketplace and calling to their companions because they want to play a game. They want to make play play. Uh, play pretend. And they said, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we mourned to you and you did not lament. We wanted to play the, the, the party game and you didn't want to play. And then we wanted to play the funeral game and you didn't want to play. And that really boils down to the room that we're in. Because in the room, there's competing ideologies. And the way it works is simply this. When you, you hear David Brody speaking and you hear myself speaking, you talk about uh, constitutional amendments and constitutional rights and First Amendment rights and 14th Amendment rights and, and going through all these aspects and religious liberty and why do we have it. We look at a constitutional republic that we've been given, begins with seven articles of the Constitution, 27 amendments. The First Amendment, after it begins with we the people in order to form a more perfect union, so a government where the power is with the people, then it's on loan to our representatives and then to protect us from our representatives because it's, it's in, innate in every human heart that we want people to serve us and not serve them. And so we want to get power and then we don't have to work and every, all of our serfs and all of our slaves do it for us. And so to protect ourselves from kings and to protect ourselves so we have representative form of government, we put this power on loan to our representatives. And then in the first, nine, uh, first 10 years of the congressional record of 90 contributors, you see the discussion over the First Amendment. Never was it a, a separation of church and state removing the church from the state. It was, in the congressional record, it was protecting religious presence in the culture because that's what gives us an accountability. The first five commandments are our relationship with God. Second five commandments are our relationship with each other. We're studying that on Wednesday nights, the Ten Commandments. So if we're right with God, we're right with each other, and we create this relationship where we serve one another, and these are all scriptural contexts. And so our founders put it together, and the very first amendment to protect us from our our leaders was the freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of... of, to peaceably assemble for right of redress of grievances against the government and the freedom of speech. And the idea is that we continue to declare truth so that they are held to that, that standard. And when our founders put together, if you think about it, 
Jeremiah, or excuse me, Isaiah 33:22 gave us our three branches of government because it says uh, God is judge, God is um, uh, the the lawmaker, and it also says he is the king. So you have executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government that our founders got it from Isaiah 33:22, Exodus 18:21, where it goes on to talk about appointing people over fifties, uh, hundred or tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. That's where you have local government, county government, state government, and federal government. And it says find people that aren't covetous, that that love the truth, right? And fear God, and and it's a description of a of a representative form of government. And even in First Samuel chapter eight, God never declared a monarchy. Even though you had King David, King Saul, King Solomon, God's form of government was representative. And and the Geneva Bible, which was the founders, the Puritans, had the commentary on the side that spoke about civil government. And the Reformation is what gave us this constitutional republic. And so when we see this, and we see people contending for truth and trying to protect the freedoms of man, and, and the Noahic covenant, and this idea that, that we're, we're responsible to God and responsible to each other, well, you come to a place where you say, wait a minute, the, you know, the, the letter that I received from the gentleman that I read last week, who declared that, that religion is responsible for all the atrocities of the world, is not necessarily a true statement, because if you remove God from the equation, you have communism, socialism, fascism all the isms, you remove God from the equation, what you end up with is a culture that doesn't see the value of man. So how many people have died under communism? Billions. You just look at Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, billions have died. And people say, what about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? What about the Salem witch trials? Fully agree. Those are atrocities and they're awful. The Crusades were a response to Muslim invasion to Europe, and you study that in in proper historical context, you'll see that it wasn't what it's described to be in revisionist history. The Inquisition, on the other hand, was awful. It was bad. And and the Inquisition happened because the church carried the sword. And and we're not seeking a monarchy. We're not seeking a theocracy. We're not seeking dominionism. We're seeking accountability to God and accountability to one another that the moral foundation that God gives us in civil government would allow us to have these freedoms. And so the Inquisition was wrong because the church had the sword and it was awful. The Salem witch trials, interestingly enough, in America, less than 30 people died in the Salem witch trials, and they were ended by Christian pastors who gave us our due process laws, simply looking at the Levitical law that says you cannot bring an accusation against someone without two or three witnesses, and they couldn't do these dreams that they were saying and then indicting someone and hanging them or burning them at the stake. And it was Christians in their due process that changed that, whereas in Europe, they never did that. The pastors never stood up, and tens of thousands died, where less than 30 died in America, and it was ended. And Justice Stephen Breyer who is by no means the conservative on the Supreme Court, said that all of our due process laws come from Christianity. And you can take it directly back to the Salem witch trials where we have our due process laws, that you can't indict someone without two or three witnesses. That came out of the Salem witch trials. And so we're contending for, for law. We're contending for ideology. And it, and it boils down to this. Either, either you believe God exists or you don't. It's that simple. The Bible says, how long will you waver between two points? Either either God is the Lord or he is not. Choose this day whom you will serve. And so when you look at a world where it says, okay, 
I don't believe God exists. That is a stretch because you look at an ordered universe where the sun rises and the sun sets and there's four seasons and the, the snow goes in the, and then it melts in the summer, it comes down, you know, saturates our, our farmlands, the product, the, the produce, and we harvest it and we, we count on it year in and year out and you see this design and it, you look at the intricacy of a human cell and the design and, and it just, it, it floors you. And to say that that happened by chance, okay, well, if you, if you take out metaphysical aspects of it and you just say it's only physical and we're only bound by our DNA and we dance to our DNA and everything is random and it's all by chance, we say, okay, well, then, then you can't use the term good and evil because you have no moral lawgiver and you have no standard and a subjective morality, which doesn't hold. And, and you look at that and you say, well, what's the byproduct of it? Because it says here that wisdom will be justified by her children. Wisdom will be justified by her children. What that means is you, you, I took my son up to the, the, the cemetery on his 13th birthday, and I said, son, every journey in life begins with the end in mind. I said, you're going to end up here, and, and, and this is how it ends. And you have to count the costs and figure how, what, what is the path you're going to, because you have to have the goal as the end result. So every ideology has an end point, and wisdom will be proven by our children. So if we remove God from the equation and we make it secular, what do we have to show for it? When prayer was removed from schools, you saw the social barometer, SAT scores went down, teen pregnancy went up, teen addiction went up, teen all went up, and the education went down. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We don't want God in the equation. We don't want God because we don't want his rules. And so here in California, we're, we're, we're ex, uh, succeeding at that. And now we have the highest debt. We have the highest taxes. We have the worst infrastructure. Our schools are declining. We're struggling. And, and we're looking at it, and, and the idea of God anywhere in the equation is, is apparent, uh, abhorrent. They, they, that's, I don't want that. And that you would stand, you'd be considered stupid or, or ridiculous. And, and this is what Jesus is pointing out. He says, you, you, you say of John the Baptist, he came neither eating nor drinking, but you call him demon-possessed. And that's really, you look at Christians, and they're a peculiar people. And I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. And, you know, and then you're a peculiar person, you're demon-possessed, or you're, you're evil, as the person in the letter wrote to me. And, and, and you, you, get, you get ostracized for being different. Well, let's say that you do, you do drink with, with publicans and, and, and you, you eat food with them as Jesus did, and he did drink wine. This is the inference in the scripture. So if you have a problem with that, take it up with Jesus. Uh, but, but they said he was a glutton and a wine bibber because he was sipping. And if anyone sees me drinking you know, a beer at a baseball game, they, you know, he's, a, he's a glutton and a wine bibber. Okay, go ahead and spread your gossip and say what you want to say. But the reality is Jesus says, and they, and they accuse him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, the first was not true, but the second was true. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but he wasn't a glutton or a wine bibber, but he did, he, he did enjoy the time with them and he, he didn't make them feel uncomfortable. And in this aspect, it says wisdom is, is justified by her children. Go ahead and call me names, call me demon possessed, call me a glutton, call me a wine bibber, but the, where I'm standing and what I'm doing and the end point and the ideology of which I, I profess, what is the end result? What is the end result? And so when we look at life, we say either God isn't here or God is here. And if God isn't here, what is the end result? The end result is billions dead. The end result is a state that is on the brink of bankruptcy. The end result is, is troublesome. But if we infuse God into the equation, well, then all of a sudden it, it changes a little bit because now we have to dance to his tune and go be a part of what he's about. And what the children are saying is, well, no, 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 no. Okay, time out. 
Uh, I, I don't want to just throw God out and say he doesn't exist. So I'm an agnostic. An agnostic is two words combined, agnosis, which means without knowledge. I believe there's a God, I just don't know who he or she is. You've heard that before. So with agno- ag- agnostics, agnosis, without knowledge, agnostics say, I believe there's a God. You can't look at the universe and say there's not an intelligent design. I believe there's a God. But I'm not necessarily into the Christian God because I don't like the rules and regulations. Well, listen, there's rules and regulations in here I don't like either. There's some I don't mind. I don't mind the admonition that we're not allowed to eat bat meat. I don't struggle with that. <laughs> and there's rules in here, quite frankly, I struggle with and I don't like. I don't. I, there's times I don't like to represent God because, quite honestly, he makes it difficult for me sometimes. You got a problem with that, you take my job. I'm, I'm okay with it. But I do know that he's always good. And I know it always works together for good. I don't always see the end from the beginning, but he does. And he knows the route to take. And, and so when you're an agnostic and you don't want the rules of Christianity because they seem burdensome and cumbersome. So what you do is you say, okay, I believe in a God, but I'm going to fashion him the way I want. So now you're making your own God. The Bible says you become like that which you worship. So money becomes your God. You become cold and lifeless. And money can buy a house, but not a home. It can buy sex, but not love. It can buy a bed, but not sleep. And if wealth were the answer, then the rich people would be happy. But the more we have, the less we own. And so what Jesus is saying is, with this story of the children, as an agnostic or somebody who says, I I recognize a deity, but I want to design that deity. And that deity needs to do my bidding. So I'm going to write the rules for my God. When I tell my God to dance, he needs to dance. And when I tell him to mourn, he needs to mourn. And he needs to do what I want him to do. Well, by definition, that's not a God. That's not a God. And I only worship that which I know. So really what you're worshiping is your brain and your God's only as big as your brain. And quite frankly, I wouldn't worship your God because I see your brain is not that big. (laughs) And you're not that smart. No offense. You're smarter than me, no doubt, but you don't keep your heart beating and your lungs moving. You can't create something out of nothing. You live in a world of matter that can be neither created nor destroyed beyond what God has already done. And so as we see these things, we say, okay, God, you don't allow us to tell you when to dance and when to mourn. And God says, no. And, and when I tell you to stand and to do what I tell you to do, the world is going to call you a wine-bibber and a glutton, or it's going to call you demon-possessed. And as they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And as I said in the first service, I said, listen, culture doesn't like police officers. And I paused, unfortunately, and an officer got upset. I said, they don't like police officers when they get a ticket for speeding. But we love the fact that there are speed limits because the roads aren't chaotic. Yes? any more than they like a pastor who has moral absolutes. As I was sharing with a a group of folks, not a Christian gathering, I told them, I said, look, folks don't like pastors because they lay out moral absolutes and you can call me all kinds of names. I'm the messenger. Call me demon possessed. Call me a wine bibber. Call me a glutton. Call me whatever you want. Call me evil. But the reality is I am declaring to you that this ideology will have results and wisdom will be proven by your children. 
And, and as I said to my sister, and, and she, she understands this because she's been with me all 53 years of my life, and she's witnessed me as a young child, as a young man, as a teenager. She saw my rebellion. I'm the youngest of four. I'm, I'm the youngest of four where the three older ones have, have all gotten great educations. They're smarter than I am. They're, they're, they've just been more successful probably in a number of ways. And I was always kind of the, oh, that's, he's trying to find himself. Whatever. But it came to a place in my life where I, I assessed it and I realized the course of action, if we draw out this, I'm going to end up miserable. And the way it works is you fail. You fail in life. You fail to live up to your father's standards. You li- fail to live up to your sibling standards. You fail to live up to cultural standards. And as you fail, you start to reassess yourself and you take the path of least resistance and you, you no longer strive for accomplishments or excellence. And you, you just rather sit in front of the idiot box or play the Xbox or whatever. And you, you just become lazy and, and shiftless and you end up going nowhere. And you realize I'm not preparing myself to provide or to serve another human being. I'm self-consumed and, and I'm a leech on my family. And, and at that stage in your life, you go, well, this is, this is depressing and it's upsetting. So to deal with the pain and the guilt or you know, whatever it is, or the anxiety, you then medicate yourself and you get addicted and you go through drug issues and alcohol issues and sexual issues. And then the guilt with that adds even more. And it's the law of diminishing return that you need different drugs. To, to, and it just, it becomes a, a nightmare and you become exhausted, quite frankly. You become exhausted and tired. And it's at that point where you're tired and you're overwhelmed and you're looking saying, my life will end up nowhere. And, and, you know, wisdom is proven by your children. The end result of this life is going to be loneliness and alienation. And you're not going to have anyone around you. And then I realized Jesus said, come unto me. And that idea of come unto me was, I want you to let me lead you down a path that will prove wisdom that your life, when you look back, will be fruitful. And what's amazing about my sister is she's honest and she says to me, Rob, your family is remarkable. 27 years of marriage, five children, two grandkids. And I look at it and I think, Lord, only you could have done this because the ideology I was pursuing would have left me lonely and addicted and miserable. And yet you changed my path and saved my life and gave me children of wisdom that all, as John, the, the apostle John says, I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God. Every one of my children will be in heaven with me. They all know Jesus. That's a miracle. All of my siblings know the Lord. That is a miracle. I've watched my wife's family. Her siblings are coming to Christ. That's a miracle. Her parents came to the Lord. That's a miracle. My parents came to the Lord. Miracle. And they would, they would receive Christ from their youngest child who's the biggest loser. That's a miracle. And and as I think about this, this is what God is saying. It's all or nothing. You don't design God because the end result is that you will be, you, you will be imprisoned by your passions because your passions truly become your God when you're telling God what to do. Ultimately, your passions will tell you what to do and the result will be a miserable life. God says, like he said to Joshua, when there was a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, Joshua approaches the the commander of the Lord's army, which was Jesus. And he says, are you for us? Are you against us? At which point Jesus turns to Joshua and he says, 
No. And his response was basically, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not on your side or on their side. The question is, are you on my side? I'm not here to do your bidding. I'm not going to dance to your flute or mourn to your tune. Are you on my side? I am the creator of the universe. I have fashioned you to have a relationship with me. I love you. I have left heaven to come and redeem you and to pay the penalty for your sin, to be reconciled to me, that I would order your steps and give you life and life more abundant, that the children of your future would be filled with wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear means respect, that you honor and submit to what I want to do. I'm not doing your bidding. You're going to do mine. And I'm a good God, and I'm a good father. And I'm not, I'm not capricious. I'm not out here to sm- smote you. I love you. And the question is, will you submit to that? And that's where the two worldviews come, and that's what we're contending for. And Jesus turns to these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And we know about Capernaum. We've studied that where the centurion built the synagogue for the Jews. You remember that story? And this is where Jesus did the, the lion's share of his teaching right there on the shores of Galilee between these three cities. It was like a little postal route. And, and they saw all the miracles. Jesus healed every person in that city. So for those of you out there going, you know what? I'll believe in the Lord if you can show me a, a, a absolute miracle. And I go, what kind of miracle? Well, where an arm's cut off and it regrows a limb. And I said to that person, I said, if I show you evidence of that, will you give your heart to the Lord? Well, I'm not really, I'm not. And I love their honest answer. It's like, no, I won't. It has nothing, you don't get saved by miracles. If, if, you, if miracles could save you, go watch a sunset. Try making one of those. Go watch a baby being born. Well, I can define that with medical science and we can do the whatever. I can show you miracles. Scott Berman, stage four cancer, completely healed. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. And yet it's not miracles that save people. You're you're saying, God, you need to dance for me. Show me some miracles. And he's saying, look, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, had those miracles that I did in those cities been done in Sidon and Tyre or in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. You guys have seen the entirety of this happen before your very eyes and you still won't submit and let God guide you and direct you. It has nothing to do with miracles. It has to do with the human heart and our unwillingness to dance to God's tune. We want him to dance to ours. And the amazing thing about my sister for her to give her heart to the Lord. My comment was, God catches his fish before he cleans them. Everyone in this room struggles with something. And for a lot of you, it's, it's habitual. And you've got, you've got a really screwed up past, and you've got some secrets. And you've got some, some messed up dysfunction. And I know that be, because I'm one of you. And as a result of that, when you come to the Lord, you go, I don't know if he wants this. And I don't think I can change before. He's not interested in you changing. Come to him and he'll clean you from the inside out and he'll do it gently and lovingly. But just give him your life. Align himself with yours. And if if you're saying, well, wait, no, I'm only going to do it if he can prove himself to me. Okay, Chorazin. Okay, Bethsaida. Okay, Capernaum. What's it going to take? 
Choose this day whom you'll serve. There's a God in the universe who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. The earth is held on no, and by nothing in space, spinning at hundreds of thousands of miles. We're in a delicate balance with the sun. We move 5% closer, closer to the sun. We burn to death 5% further away. We freeze to death. And, and we see the four seasons. We see everything screaming of intelligent design. And we dismiss it and come up with these fanciful ideas. And we say, look, I, I'm not even remotely close to receiving the Lord unless you can show me a, a multitude of miracles. I think about that. I go, what wisdom is there in that? And what's the end result of your life? Tell me how your family's doing. Tell me how your kids are doing. Tell me how those relationships are going for you. Tell me how those addictions are coming around. And the Lord says, I, I'm, I'm telling you, a miracle's not going to save you. God will. And that will be a miracle of salvation, but it's going to require that you allow him to call the shots. He's God. He's Lord. And he says, at the conclusion of this picture with Capernaum and, and, and Chorazin and Bethsaida, he says to those listening, he answered, and I don't know what the question was, but in verse 25, at the time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. I love this. Because salvation requires that you come to the Lord as a child. That's all right. Tell him you'll call him back. <laughs> the Bible says that you need to come to the Lord as a child. You go, oh, wait a minute. Does that mean I have to shelve my brain? Listen, I'm in favor of higher education, especially for Christians. As a matter of fact, our founders set up Princeton, Harvard, Yale, all these schools of higher learning for the sake of promoting the gospel and training pastors. And they had brilliant education. And in our education system, apart from God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is using the, that knowledge for, for the glory of God. The word university comes from the, from the term Elohim, which means it's God's name, unified diversity, where we get the word university, diverse studies, biology, sociology, you know, geology, for the sole purpose of glorifying the creator. That's how universities were established, unified diversity, diverse study for a unified purpose of glorifying God, seeing as revealed and known laws, laws of nature and nature's God, as our founders described. And so we see this, and yet we still have to come to Christ as a child, there has to be that, listen, when I was young, I wasn't worried about my, when I opened the refrigerator, if there'd be food in it. My father took care of that. If I turned on the light, I wasn't worried about it going on because my dad paid the electric bill. I had no idea what bills were. I had no idea how to shop. I just knew that daddy had it. And as a babe, as a child, that's that submission and that trust that I trust that God has me. I'm his child. He loves me. He will never leave me, never forsake me. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. He has the hairs on my head numbered. Every tear I've ever cried, he has in a bottle. This is our God. This is how tender and precious he is as a father. And as he says this to us, that we have to come to him as a child, it reminds me of the story I've told countless times about the seniors in Stanford and the kindergartners. And they were both given a riddle. The graduating seniors at Stanford were given a riddle that said, what is greater than God, more evil than the devil? The rich have it, the poor need it, and if, the, uh, if you eat it, you will die. And the seniors couldn't come up with the answer, and the kindergartners could. And the seniors were thinking, okay, so what's greater than God, more evil than the devil? The rich have it, the, the, poor, the, the rich need it, the poor have it, and if you eat it, you'll die. So if you calculate in the Nietzsche, and then if we think about Locke and some of the other philosophers at the time, and we go and we take the concept of the second law of thermodynamics and add the equations, and, and they couldn't get it. And the kindergartners got it. What's greater than God? 
Nothing. They didn't have to get to the rest of it. Nothing. And why is it as children we know that our parents, anything larger than us is what we cry out for? That's why the Bible says, children, obey your parents and go well with you, live long on the earth. You start to understand that these earthly parents are a picture, a micro picture of a larger picture of God. And so you start to submit and understand that. And we come to Christ as a child, we humble ourselves because there's humility in a child. We trust those that will care for us. Earthly parents fail us. I know because I'm one. I've been failed and I've failed. But God's never let me down. He's never failed me. And even the way he disciplines me is so tender and so precious and so patient. He's not a capricious God. And he says, you, you, these things are revealed not to the wise and the prudent, not to the PhDs piled high and deep. It's revealed to babes. And it requires a humility and a tenderness to say, God, help me. And then Jesus says in verse 26, even so... Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And today, he wills to reveal him to you. He longs for you to see him. And he says these three simple words to you. He says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. I remember he said that to me when I was in a hotel room with my swim coach over 35 years ago. I'd seen the wreck and the train wreck of my life. I had failed in every attempt I had sought. I was discouraged. I was seeking a path of least resistance. I was experimenting in alcohol and drugs. And I just realized this is a dead end. And this man laid out the gospel. And right there in that hotel room, I prayed to receive the Lord. I yoked myself to Jesus' life. And I look back now and the path has been precious. And wisdom is proven by our children. If there isn't a God in your world, and I've lived as though there is, and we get to the end of life, I'm happy. I did well. I raised my kids well. They understood right and wrong. They cared for society. They invested. They sought excellence. They pursued. I, I was loved and loved. I have a heritage. And I'm blessed. And if I get to the end of this and there's no God, I have nothing to lose. But if you're wrong and I'm right, you have nothing. And your ideology has left your family bankrupt. What's the point? Why are you here? You're screaming into the darkness of chaos, trying to find meaning when you're a gnat on the butt of an elephant. And all you hear is your voice echoing in the darkness. What's the point? The depression that would come with that and trying to keep the plate spinning, and if it's money or if it's possessions, the smarter you get, the dumber you become. The more you possess, the less you have. And all it brings you is heartache. You're trying to figure out what account it's in and how to avoid the stock market and how to avoid the taxes and how to avoid, and I don't want this grubby kid getting that and I don't want this one and I don't want these people stealing it and I've got these bad renters in this property that I own and I've got to, and I've got to move. You're exhausted. 
And you're always wondering if this is a friend or a foe and who's coming after me and what it's all about. And I love this illustration, the questions of confidence. The average person worries. The average person's worry is focused on 40% of things that will never happen, 30% of things about the past that can't be changed, 12% of things relating to criticisms by others, mostly untrue, 10% about health, which gets worse with stress, and 8% about real problems that will be faced. My father-in-law is a great example. He, he went to the doctor because his memory was lapsing. He was struggling. And this is a man that, you know, type 2 diabetes, open heart surgery, bypass, and he's struggling with his memory and he's overwhelmed by it. And he goes to the doctor. The doctor says, we're going to run some Alzheimer's tests. I'm worried about Alzheimer's. This early on stage of Alzheimer's. He's like, oh my goodness. And goes through the test. He says, I'm, I'm worried that it's Alzheimer's. And for a week, it gets worse. He's away from the doctor and he's waiting for the results to come back over the week. And his, his memory's gotten worse and it's terrible. And he's thinking, oh, and they're making plans. And my dad had had Alzheimer's for 15 years and died last year. And my, my father-in-law is just overwhelmed by this. My mother-in-law and they're all struggling. And they finally come back to the doctor for the results. And the doctor says, I got good news. Good news is you don't have Alzheimer's. And my father-in-law says, why in the world is my memory gone? He says, well, it, it's stress-related. Is there anything stressful you can think of? He goes, yeah, you told me I had Alzheimer's. <laughs> think about all the things you carry that are not necessary and God never intended you to carry. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. After he lays out this whole thing, he says, come to me. I've revealed myself to you. Come to me. Come to me. And when he says, come to me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Boy, doesn't that describe us? I will give you rest. And people tell me, oh, pastor, I can't sleep. Pastor, I can't sleep. And I just go, Psalm 127 says, the Lord gives rest to those he loves. I have no problem sleeping. He loves me. What's your problem? <laughs> I'm not that cruel. I usually tell him, and it's true, that God loves you. Why don't you rest in that? He didn't intend for you to lay awake worrying about things that he, only he can take care of. He wants you to just let him have those. His yoke is easy, his burden's light. Cast your cares on him. Go to sleep. Rest. I have no problem sleeping. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> I love sleeping. <laughs> but he says, take my yoke upon you. And you think, how can a burden be light when you're putting a yoke? You know the yokes, they're, they're, they're designed like this. And you got two oxen that are strapped to it, and you got the water buckets on either side, and there's a cart behind it, and you're pulling it, and you're like, My yoke is easy. It's like thing around your neck. <laughs> my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What a depiction. And and any farmer would see this illustration and go, What? But any farmer would realize it. And I I I brought up an illustration. I wish it was my own, but it's not. I'll, I'll just read it to you. A farmer was plowing his field with a team of oxen. And the man noticed that one of the animals was seemingly a little bigger than the other. So he asked the farmer about it. And the response from the farmer was very interesting. He said that the big animal was an older animal that was well-trained. And the smaller one was a young animal that was new to the yoke. And the man went on to inquire as to why he put them together. And this is the answer that he got from the farmer. The farmer said, well, you see, it's like this. The older ox is the best ox I've ever had. He knows his way around the field, and the reason I put the younger one with him is so that the older one, more knowledgeable ox, could teach the younger one how to plow. If I never put them together, the younger one would never learn, and by himself, the younger ox would pull himself to death. But together, he learns to cooperate with, with the rest and the strength of the older ox. And um, 
Jesus, in a sense, wants us to take his yoke and let us lead like the older ox. The yoke keeps us on the same path as the Lord. This author writes, the yoke makes the connection between the two ox so that they work together towards a common goal. He goes on to say they can't stray far from each other because the yoke restricts where they can travel. You have to follow the same path. The experience is always there to share with the inexperienced. And that's why Jesus wants us to cooperate and walk together with him. The yoke allows us to submit to Jesus' lead. I've shared this story with you, but I think it fitting today in that in this passage where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Just meditate on that for a little bit. All you who are burdened and heavy laden. He says, come to me. When I was a lifeguard, I was the rookie guard riding shotgun. End of the day, marine layers rolling in. It's getting cold. The wind's kicking up. It was a big surf day. I'd had over 10 rescues that day. I was soaking wet. My towel was soaking wet. I was freezing cold. The heater in the Jeep didn't work. I'm shivering. And there's one last group of swimmers out in front of this rip current area that we'd had problems with all day. And there's a group of folks out there wearing Raiders outfits. This is Coronado, California, San Diego. I'm a San Diego Charger fan. I'm like, let them drown. And we're telling them over the PA system that they need to move 50 yards to the south because the rip current is starting to form in their area and they could get sucked out. Please move 50 yards. Please come in and move south. And they're giving us the international sign of get lost. I could display that for you if you'd like, but I'm hoping you understand that. And I was irritated by it. I'm like, fine. Raider Nation. And uh, all of a sudden we see this set of waves come in and the rip current just starts sucking and they're struggling and most of them get in, but one guy kind of heavy set, big Raider shirt gets sucked out. And I'm like, man, and the tower says, you got to go. And the driver says, you got to go. And I'm thinking, let them drown. I wasn't a believer at the time. And I'm like, all right. So I get out and I pop my Peterson tube, put the harness around my chest. I'm going out with my fins. The water's cold. I'm shivering. I'm like, stupid idiot. I'm putting on my fins. I'm walking out there. It's so cold. I'm taking my time. And he's doing what we call climbing the ladder. (laughs) It's just sucking him out. So I get through the surf. I get out there and and I give him the tube. And he goes, "I, I don't need it. Okay, Sparky. So I just rest on the tube and I'm floating while I'm shivering and I can't leave. And all of his friends are laughing on the shore and he's embarrassed and he's, he's struggling and grasping. And actually, if I go near him, he'll take me under cause he's desperate. And, and I'm, I'm at a place where I, I can't do anything for you until you're burdened and heavy laden and you're ready to quit. Did you hear that? I already know you need to be saved. I'm waiting to save you, but you, you have figured out some philosophy. You, 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 you want, you want, a, you want a, a flute dance or you want a mournful dirge. You, you want to live by your rules. Wisdom is proven by your children. Just work that one out. Tell me how it's going for you. 
You tell me to stand back. I don't need you. You're demon-possessed. You're a wine-bibber. You're a glutton. You're, you're, you're way too fundamental. I don't need you. Fine. Take your philosophy and roll with it. As I sat there, and I didn't know until I became a Christian how profound this moment was, I'm just more irritated. And there he is just digging and scratching, and then he aspirates water, and he starts panicking. His eyes just turn purple, look like Barney. And, and he's, he's like, help, 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 I need the tube. And he was exhausted. And I wasn't Jesus. I wasn't the father. I had no love for him. He was actually an irritant to me. He goes, help, help. And I'm floating on the tube. I go, you say please. <laughs> he goes, what? I go, you say please. He goes, I need this. I said, you say please. I'm freezing. I knew you needed to be saved. I had to wait for your pride to come to the end because you're more concerned about the people on the shore than you are about being saved. And I had to sit out here and freeze. Now you say, please, I've had a long day. (laughs) He's like, please, please, please. I hook him up. I put him in my yoke and I bring him to shore. He safely arrives. And when he gets in, all of his friends are laughing. And he says, you're not my friends. He saved my life. He grabs his stuff and leaves. I had to wait until he followed his philosophy to its dead end where he was burdened and heavy laden. And then he realized my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll bring you to shore. The stronger ox will lead you, guide you and bring you safely to where you need to be. Now I'm no Jesus. I was just a lifeguard. I could swim better than he could, but this is life. God's not interested in dancing to your tune because your tune is causing you to drown. It's not working. It's not working. And your philosophy and your vain imaginations, look at your family, look at your life, take an honest assessment. I had to do that. My sister had to do that. We all have to do that. And God is waiting. But he's not irritated like I was as an arrogant lifeguard. He's patient and long-suffering. He doesn't want you to die. He's going to wait until you say, save me. And Jesus says, come to me. You got to make that effort. You got to grab this. I'll hook you up. I'll put my yoke on you. I'll get you to shore. I'm the stronger ox. I don't think it could be more clear. What are you waiting for? This is the world. God loves you. He's a precious father. The wisdom he imparts to you changes your life and the path he leads you on is such a good one. It's life and life more abundant. I'm, I'm no loser in this equation. And I learned a long time ago, he doesn't have to dance to my flute or to my funeral dirge. I want to dance to his. And he's made my life precious. And I sleep well. And I want you to too. So I'm going to pray, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And this is going to be a time where I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. I want you to picture yourself. Don't move. I want you to picture yourself off the beach. You're drowning. And when are you going to be exhausted, burdened, and heavy laden enough to say, save me? Because today he's ready to say, come to me. He loves you.
I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond as the worship team comes up. Join with me as we pray. Please, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you, God, that all creation speaks of the glory of God and that every man is without excuse. Blaise Pascal said, we all have a God-shaped void. We know we need you. We want to design you and define you and tell you how to dance and what you're supposed to do. And that profits us nothing. It's a dead-end ideology that just leaves us brokenhearted and lonely and burdened and heavy-laden. And out there trying to spin the plates and try to save ourselves, you wait patiently for us to come to the end of ourselves. We're exhausted, we're burdened, and we're heavy-laden. At that moment when we realize we are desperate, we say, save me. And God, your words to us so tender and so sweet as a father, come to me. I love you. Come to me. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, we're all out in the water together. You have this, this picture that you have been operating on your own terms. And I don't have to describe for you what's going on in your life. You already know it. You're burdened. You're heavy laden. It's time to yoke yourself to Jesus and let him bring you to shore, safely to shore. Because he who begins a good work is faithful to complete it. He has been placed in the Father's hand no man can remove. He, seeks, he comes to seek and to save that which is lost, those who are drowning, those who are burdened and heavy laden. He says to you right now in the quietness of your heart, come to me, come to me. It's an act of faith. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm gonna ask you to respond with an act of faith, just as that young man did out in the ocean. He put his hand forward and grabbed the tube and I hooked him up, yoked him and brought him in. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you if you wanna receive the Lord, you wanna come to him. And just like that young man in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to put your hand forward. It's an act of faith. The Bible says, if you profess me before man, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. I'll be the witness of that. Everyone else, it's, their eyes are closed. This is a private moment between you, God, and me. So right here in this place, as the God of the universe has said to you in the midst of your burden and your heavy-laden life, as you're drowning in your own wisdom, as a child, desperate. It's time to receive him. He says, come to me. If you want to receive him, I'm going to ask you right now, would you please raise your hand? Just put it forward. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And you. God bless you over here. God bless you. Anyone else? Come on, put them up. God bless you back there. Praise the Lord. You can put your hands down. I see yours over there. Praise the Lord. You have made a wonderful decision. You have yoked yourself to the God of the universe and he's going to get you safely to shore. Well done. Well done. Precious Father, Papa, Abba Father, thank you that you've saved us, that you've yoked us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and we're going to make it safely to the other side. For those who gave their heart to you this day, Lord, would you bless them, encourage them, 
I think of the story of the man carrying the sack of potatoes and the friend said, how do you know you're saved? And he dropped the potatoes and he said, because the burden is gone. It's gone. It's all his now, not yours. You rest, rest. Lord, heal them, bless them. Give them rest, give them peace. We praise you for what you've done this day in Jesus' name, amen.